Hey guys, Montel here, and welcome to this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Today's guest is one of the nation's leading experts in cannabis and hemp law. She's a shareholder and partner at Bianchi and Brandt in Scottsdale, Arizona, the co-founder and president of Cannabis Advisors, an international cannabis consulting firm. Her extensive knowledge and expertise has awarded her top 100 cannabis attorneys in Arizona, along with Women's Leaders, Women women Leaders in the Cannabis Industry Recognition. For the last three years, she was selected as a Super Lawyers Southwest Rising Star, an honor reserved for attorneys who demonstrate excellence in their practice. Welcome to the show, Ms. Laura Bianchi. Thank you so much for being here today with us. So let's be blunt. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me. Absolutely. Let's let's go back a little bit in time. Just what made you focus your practice on, you know, the nascent cannabis industry before many of your peers would even consider it? True, true. So it was a little bit a sort of little accidental and I guess intentional. So I was a corporate attorney. Um, and when this first was was passed in Arizona, we had a lot of clients who were asking about rules and regulations and what this looked like. And we thought, well, there's no other area where you would need a lawyer more than a new program. And so started to work in the program. Um, of course, quickly learned that a lot of lawyers, including the State Bar Association and things, were not in favor of it. Um, so I think it was really our entrepreneurial spirit that said, look, we're lawyers. This is a state program. It's legal. Individuals need advice. They need directions. And so we started to work on the application, the rulemaking process, and the applications, and it, it really just evolved into a, a national national practice. I, I could have never anticipated how, how big it would be. That's great. And, you know, I mean, now, you know, being in the national, you, you recognize all the differences, though, between every single state, because every state law is different, correct? Totally different, yes. And it is, you know, it's confusing. And I think it's hard for a lot of lawyers too, right? Because they're used to sort of staying in their own lanes and they know their states and they do this. And in cannabis, you really have to have a more global uh, picture, I think, to really advise correctly. You've got to know the law in each state. You've got to know the courts. And you also have to know the overarching, uh, you know, complications of the cannabis industry. So it is, it's a much bigger undertaking than I think, you know, most areas of the law. Well, especially with, with our new hemp law that's passed that legalizes hemp, but then doesn't legalize financing for help. I mean, it's it's literally one of, I think, one of the craziest things that's going on right now in the country today, especially since now you have legal, legal hemp sales. You've always had legal hemp sales in America, but now all of a sudden this new law has put some extra constraints on what had already happened before. This has really gotten crazy, right? It's made it so much more complicated. So while I applaud what the Farm Bill was trying to do, it really then created this sort of a snowball effect. And now every state, you know, has legal cannabis, or most states have legal cannabis programs, but then they started to implement their own hemp programs. And there's still a lack of understanding, right? Do we look at it from a finished product or agricultural? So what it did is now we have almost a little bit of a, a clash of the programs in a lot of cases where I don't think it's necessary, but I think that was just an unintended effect that we've seen. So it's definitely made things a little bit more complicated. Yeah. I mean, before that, before the hemp bill passed, um, you know, I, you could consume hemp in America. You could buy, you know, though we were really behind the power curve because we were importing something like $600,000 worth of hemp from around the world into the United States before the hemp bill passed. Cause I, I consumed hemp protein for 20 years. Right. And got it from Canada, believe it or not, in a uh, in a mix and never really ran into some of the problems that people are running into now 
producing their own hemp products here in the United States. It's definitely made things more difficult for the business owners, right? I think consumers who have used hemp products have been used to being able to get it. And what it did is, is now it added sort of an extra layer where, you know, some of these producers need you know, CBD isotopes, things like that. And it's made it a lot harder to get it in. So it, it's just added a complexity to the, 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 I guess, access to the product, which then, you know, makes it more difficult to have consistency as well. If they're used to getting hemp products from other states or other countries, and now some states don't allow that, again, it has definitely added a, a, a lot of complications to the process. Yeah, I know that was that's something else I thought was kind of strange is the fact that now we passed a hemp bill and states that were previously allowing hemp products in are now not letting them in. Totally. Well, it's made it more restrictive, right? And same thing, like I said, if you see in some of these states like Massachusetts and Michigan, the problem we're seeing is even the intersection between cannabis programs and hemp programs where, you know, individuals who have cannabis licenses want to also produce different, you know, hemp products and sell at their dispensaries. And I have issues getting them from one program to the other, which is just sort of a bizarre concept, but it's what happened when you create these two, you know, pretty highly regulated programs in these states. I mean, I have a lot. I have tons of questions for you. So let's let's stay in this direction for a second. Yeah. I mean, let's crystal ball for a second. What do you think is going to happen in the next year, next two years? I mean, you know, I've been one who has been saying this all along. People have not been listening to me for the last four years. They were all excited and thinking, "Oh man, we get a Democrat in office, this is all going to change. They're going to pass all these marijuana laws." Hemp laws. I kept saying, "Excuse me, if it's the two that are running for office, you need to watch yourself." Because number one, you know, Biden has never been a supporter of cannabis ever. And that's because of his own family issues with drug abuse. That right. wasn't cannabis, but he hasn't really gotten out of 20 years ago, you know, information that claimed cannabis to be a gateway drug. He's still stuck in 20 years ago. And then when you look at Harris, Harris, you know, was at the helm as attorney general of California, you know, rest, arresting record numbers of people and incarcerating them for nonviolent cannabis crime, even when the state had legalized cannabis. And, you know, she can lie all she wants about, you know, I usually for stop the stupid. Nobody cares whether you did anyway. But number two, you know, you're really just now digging yourself a deeper hole because now you're talking about how hypocritical you are. So, I mean, what do you think we're looking at over the next couple of years? I am, I should say, full disclosure, I have been in and out and in and out and I'm back in the business of cannabis and hemp um, for the last 20 years, long before this was you know, Vogue and the gold rush. You know, I was the guy running around the country, you know, where people were hiding and staying away from me, trying to advocate for patients back in 2000, 2001, 2002, advocating for things like CBD, where nobody even knew what CBD was, even not even recognizing the fact that our government knew what it was. So what do you think? Crystal call for me for a second. What do you think the next couple of years look like? You know, I think there's two sides to it, right? There is still so much confusion and misinformation. And I think that's the unfortunate part. So even as we work with clients throughout the U.S., most people, you know, think CBD is is its own thing, right? Like, do you you work with CBD? I'm like, okay, let's back up. Let's talk about cannabis. Let's talk about hemp. These things have become sort of their own, you know, uh, their own word or their own, uh, you know, explanation. And I think regulators and government officials are still baffled. They don't know what's legal, what's not legal. And so we still have an uphill battle when it comes to education. I do think, though, it is. Let me, let, me, let me just pause you for one second. Because if you went back and looked at, you know, I'm telling you probably 60%, 70% of my podcast, and we've done well over 130 of them, 140 of them. Um, now, I have been a you know, advocate and champion for this industry 
checking itself and understanding that the most important thing that we as an industry need to do right now today is to educate the masses. Education, education, education. It should be the, the theme of, of cannabis and hemp as location, location, location is to real estate. I mean, the truth of the matter is we have done ourselves a disservice by trying to just be a B2B educating forum where right. we should be a B2C educated forum. That's B to consumer. Letting right. the consumer understand. I mean, why do, why do we think that, you know, the pharmaceutical industry spends so much money on commercials, you know, driving, you know, they're uh, driving the constituency across the country into the doctor's office saying, you know, I heard about this drug. Yeah, they do so because they know that if the patient goes in and kicks the doctor in the butt, the doctor will then kick the legislation in the butt and make sure that the medication is available. Totally. We stop doing that. And, and I think part of it has to do with the fact that, you know, rather than having legacy participation in cannabis, but now having all this new, you know, green rush money in cannabis, these are people who don't really care about cannabis. They never cared about it, or they were probably on the border or on the fence over the last 20 years and, and probably one of the, the, the Nikki negatives, you know, and now sure. all of a sudden they can see an opportunity that they can make some money. Now all of a sudden, oh, we love cannabis. Right, so, right. so that's a long way to ask the question, but you know, no. I, mean, I love the fact that you did say education. I'm gonna hit you with another thing in a minute, but yeah, let's go go right ahead. I'm sorry I stopped you there. Well, no, I mean I think it, that's what creates the problems, right? I really think that the lack of education and the lack of traditional funding, right? We don't have access to typical funding, banking, all of those things make this industry 20 times more expensive for business owners. So then what that does is it kicks out a lot of let's call the sort of, you know, regular or even medium level people. And now you're seeing big multi-state operators come in because they're the ones that actually have the capital to build these, you know, licenses and facilities out. And a lot of that cost and expense comes from the fact that we don't have consistency. We don't have regulations across the states and the banking and tax matters and not being able to get loans or SBA loans, things like that. It puts a huge dent on the, on the financial capabilities of most people in their ability to operate. In states like, you know, California, and look, I understand California was the first, so I don't like to harp on them too much, but they went from sort of a wishy-washy program to over-regulating. Now you're, you're seeing people who can't afford to operate within that regulatory space. So it's a lot of those that lack of education and information and over-regulation or just not regulating the right things, right? The idea of a nonprofit or that you can't sell these are... Those sorts of things just create complications that lawyers have to find ways around. That's not what we want. If you have clear, consistent ways to operate and, and regulate an industry, it will I think it will really uh, level the playing field across the board and solve a lot of our issues with who's in the industry and access and testing and information and education. But right now, there's just a big disparity because of the, the capital, really. And it's a lot of infighting. I've, I've, I've noticed in the last year or so, even though during COVID, you know, we did see that, you know, the cannabis industry appeared to be kind of, um, you know, a uh, bulletproof industry because we've uh, we've seen across the board cannabis sales have gone up all across the country. Even the, the, the dark market cannabis sales have gone up across the board. And we've seen, you know, businesses are, have been at least holding their own, keeping their noses above water. However, at the same time, Again, they've concentrated so much more on B2B than B2C. You know, yeah. even during a time during COVID when, you know, the research and data should have been the most important thing that all the cannabis suppliers were touting, they weren't. Absolutely. You know, I, I went to a very interesting. I was um, 
a week ago, I uh, had to go, and I won't say which state, but I went and testified on behalf of a, uh, a company that had won a license in a state. Then the state took their license back because they said, well, they, they thought there were some discrepancies in their application, but there weren't any discrepancies in their application. They just couldn't believe that this company had gotten that many people who were African-American on board who were some of the civic leaders in the entire community on board or their board. And they just didn't believe it. And so, you know, we, they had a lot of us board members, you know, show up and testify. And I was in the middle of the testimony and, you know, but not in the middle. It was the first question that was asked to me uh, by the lawyers was, Mr. Williams, why don't you tell us a little bit about, you know, what got you involved and why you're involved in cannabis? And I said, well, I got involved in cannabis for the exact same reasons that our government got involved in cannabis 20 years ago by filing and granting itself its own patent on cannabis. And, you know, patent number 6603507. And the judge stopped me said, excuse me? I said, yes, sir. You know, I don't know if you know this or not, Judge, but, you know, our government, you know, number one, has been funding cannabis for over 50 years, has been dispensing cannabis for over 45 years, has been researching cannabis and, and paying for research around the world, and also filed and gave itself its own patent on CBD. And he said, then I, I noticed while I was talking, he was typing in 6603507, and his eyes kind of popped open. But I thought, that's the most bizarre thing in the world. I'm sitting in a courthouse with a, with a judge who is trying to adjudicate a case about cannabis, and he doesn't even know. Totally. And you find that even for any other cannabis case, right? When we, the worst case scenario is to have to go before arbitrators or judges because there's such a lack of, of information, even from a legal perspective, about what you can and can't do in these individual states let alone any sort of consistency in the application of the rules and regulations. So it's, it, it's certainly, it creates extra cost and expense. And it, it, it absolutely is one of, I think, one of the main indicators of, of, you know, that there aren't enough women, there isn't enough diversity. It, it's because of all these complications. And so then you get sort of those top white guys, offense to the top white guys, but you get those top guys, right, who own the multi-state uh, companies and, and they're able to get the capital. They're able to get past a lot of those hurdles and complications because they have huge legal teams that can, and it really cuts out, you know, that important part of, of the industry, which is so many of the individuals who are passionate about it, who have expertise, who have, you know, could absolutely participate in making it a better, more cohesive industry. Cause we don't have a lot of consistency right now, whether from dispensary to dispensary, let alone state to state. Yeah, and state to state for sure. I mean, I know there's a big difference in Arizona. I mean, you don't really have a standard, I don't know, formulation or standard testing criteria along with your legislation, right? Well, we just, which is absurd, but we actually implemented the testing rules in November of last year. So our program was, our first medical program came into effect in 2010, and we just had testing rules go into effect last November. It's been really difficult. We don't quite have the testing facilities up and running. Our Department of Health Services is still trying to figure out, you know, how this all works. So it has certainly been a, a difficulty and a complication. And it seems like sort of a, a, an odd oversight in a medical program, right? You ideally have people who have compromised immune systems, different things like that, that are taking, right? That are taking this for medical reasons. To not have testing be one of the core requirements has always been just a little baffling. But again, it's a lack of information. Stay with us. We'll be right back. 
Do you want to know how to become a social media influencer, how to grow an online business, how to make money from your laptop and build a profitable online company? Well, I'm going to show you how in my podcast, Living the Red Life. I built a million dollar company at the age of 25, a $10 million company at the age of 30, and now I'm the A-list celebrity marketer that speaks around the world on how to transform businesses and make them profitable using Facebook ads, marketing, social media. My name is Rudy Moore, and I'm super pumped to bring you my podcast, Living the the red life i know this is going to become your new favorite podcast and i'm going to show you how to grow a profitable online company step by step every single week absolutely lack of and lack of you know and lack of cohesiveness i i I've, I've been saying the second this industry stops the stupidity and tries to get together, they're going to realize that there's going to be plenty of money to go around for everybody because we are barely scratching the surface when it comes to cannabis and hemp um, as a business. You know, if we, if we go back to the 1600s, cannabis and hemp ruled the world. It was probably a billion trillion dollar business back then. Sure. Um, and it's not even, you know, above a $50 billion business now. I mean, uh, you know, we, we need to if we were to collectively bring all those together who are suppliers and for one minute had a forum where people would agree that we will work together legislatively to push our government, we could literally turn this whole thing around, I think. 100%. And I've seen it. I mean, so that's the other problem I think is, is a lot of the individuals in this industry are either, you know, those big multi-state operators or they're people that really have operated in the dark for so long that they have a a, sort of a natural distrust of other business owners, right? So a lot of times we're our biggest enemy, you know, when we're trying to pass things, they're afraid of competition. They're afraid of the other guy knowing their special secret. And and I understand some of those things, but I, I think we can be our own worst enemy. And I've seen, you know, in Arizona, we had an example where one of the cities tried to pass a totally egregious, ridiculous task. And you saw an industry come together in a state in two days, it was done. It was gone. And I said, look, when we all agree on something, how much power you actually have. And imagine if that was on a national basis. You just, again, that lack of, of cohesion and people are still not, we still don't work together super well in the industry. Oh, well, I'm sorry. I never did give you a chance to, you know, with your crystal ball, what do you think the next year or two looks like? And again, you know, just had Clarence Thomas last week come out and, and make some statement. Was it this week or last week? Last week. Last week, I think. Last week. Yeah. Last Friday, last Friday he came out and made some statements, and then yesterday Schumer and um, uh, I'm sorry, what was the other representative? I yeah, yeah, yeah. But both came forward and and you know put for a new bill, which I'm really not in favor of, but decriminalization because there's nothing criminal about something that was put on this planet that can help people. However. Right. Um, if that's where we have to start, then okay, I get it. Um, but still, um, and that was put forth and is going to garner no support and didn't get the press that I think it should have gotten. It's the same way as that they've kind of kind of tried to squash down, you know, Clarence Thomas. So what do you think? I mean, we got Clarence Thomas saying that, you know, if you look at this from a constitutional standpoint, there may be something wrong there. Yeah. Well, I, I think so. I do think we're going to see some project progress on the banking and financial side, right? And I can be my, I'm sort of a pessimist when it comes to most political actions, right? So I think that's because they want to make sure that they're actually getting the tax dollars from this industry, right? Politicians and states are starting to look and go, wait, we're missing out on something. So I do think there will be progress on the banking and and access to capital side. I still think we've got quite a ways to go 
before this, we really see sweeping change. Like I think you and I want, I just think there are so many hurdles. We still sort of have this don't ask, don't tell, right? In most states, besides a few of them, Arizona is one of them, right? Our politicians aren't really, they're not for it. They're not against it. Everybody kind of stays out of each other's way. You know what I mean? And so it's right. that's not effective. That doesn't really effectuate change. And, you know, I, I will bet you that, you know, you know, there's, there are probably those, you know, little voices speaking in Trump's head right now, talking about the fact that if this is something that you went for, let Uday and Kuse, your sons, you know, uh, uh, get into business. Um, you know, this might be something that gets you back in the White House. I'll bet you homeboy would actually jump up and down and say, I support hemp. I support hemp and I support cannabis just to be reelected. I, I would agree. And from a business perspective, right? I think anything that, that makes some money. But I mean, I mean what, what, what saddens me is that, you know, this is the same hoodwink that Biden and, and Harris did to, you know, most of the constituents around the country. They ran around the country claiming that when we get in office in the first 100 days, we're going to do something. And they've not done a damn thing, except for yesterday. And then you got the president on, you know, uh, be on record saying that, you know, uh, well, you need to follow the rules when it came to the young lady who was the uh, Olympic sprinter. You know, you need to follow the rules. And and, and it's clear where he's coming from. Sure. And, you know, somebody close to 90 years old, yeah, they don't look at it. They still believe the stupidity. Totally. Well, and I think here's the difficult part, and, and not to get political, but our last election became a lot more about personality, I think, than what could actually be done. And I get that, right? One is a very polarizing personality, and the others had more of a, a feel of bringing people together, right? So I think when you have that type of of a, an election, you lose some of the uh, interest in actually the facts and what they're going to do or what they have done. And I don't think it was based on that. And, it's, you know, just because they're nice about it doesn't make it any less impactful. They haven't done anything. And until we get that support um, from really the upper echelon of our entire political system, it's going to be difficult to effectuate that change. And the states are going to do it. And then it, it still remains disjointed and it's still complicated and costly. And, and that's where you still get, you know, these hurdles and sort of glass ceilings that have been created. So let's dig into a little bit of what the states have to face. I mean, you know, now, now talk a little bit about the employment law. You know, I mean, was it uh, Amazon just came out and said that they are no longer going to test um, anybody who's uh, who's who's applying for a job for cannabis, and, and uh, uh, they're not going to test for that in the application process. But they will continue to test, which I think they should when it comes to their truckers and the heavy lift operators. And those sure. people, of course, we don't need people, you know, utilizing any form of psychotropic medication while they're involved in driving or in uh, or shipping and those kinds of things. However, you know, we also do know that in states where people have access to legal cannabis, you can't tell me what to do on Friday and Saturday night. And until we come up with a test that can verify you smoked in the last 15 minutes, I don't see how they can test people in the trucking business in Amazon. But do you think that's going to catch on with other businesses? I it do. It has to. And I think it already has. I mean, we've seen just in the last couple of years a really big influx of employers who are going, how do I modify our policies and procedures or our employee handbooks to make sense of this, right? We, we don't want to get in situations where we're getting rid of really quality people because they're, you know, taking something as medicine. And in fact, in Arizona and some other states, there's actually protections for employees. Um, so I think employers have started to look at this. 
you know, we always try to advise the focus needs to be on the impairment. It's really difficult. There's no blood test, right? You can't tell when it was taken. You can't tell any of those things. We don't have the science yet. So we have, it's not available. Um, but I think you're starting to see employers who are, are coming up with better policies and procedures rather than you just can't have it. And if you test positive for it, you're done. And so I do think that that's a good thing. And Amazon, of course, what Amazon does, right? Others tend to follow suit just because of its sheer size and impact. So I think we'll see it, you know, continue to be a sweeping effect in, in corporations. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you know, again, now, can you talk a little bit about how it's impacting employers and employees related to cannabis law? You know, the gray area still does exist and it's being sorted out. What's going on in Arizona when it comes to this gray area? Well, look, here's the difficult part. And I always say this, just because something is, is correct or incorrect does not mean it's an automatic. And I say that for employees, right? So I've had employees who will come and say, I have a medical card. I've got an employer. I tested positive, right? And they, they terminated me. Well, again, in Arizona, we have protections for medical patients. But how do you get from those protections to you don't have a job? You've got to go through a lawsuit most of the time, right? So now you've just been fired unfairly and incorrectly according to our rules, but you've got to be able to hire counsel to go sue the company. You don't have a job and an income. So it's a, it's challenging for employees. It's also challenging for people who rent. It's challenging for people whose immigration status may not be you know, concrete. These are all things that can be affected in states that have legal programs. And so I know I keep saying it, but that education and information, people have to know what's at risk, real world risk, right? Not what the law says, because I can tell you all day long what it says and what your rights are. Doesn't mean things don't happen and it's costly and expensive sometimes to prove that you're right on those. So, you know, the employee side can, can definitely be, it can be concerning because it's confusing. For employers, again, it's confusing because they're saying, look, we want to have consistent, uh, you know, guidelines across the board for those types of workers that operate machinery, medical profession, doctors, things like that, right? There's also a concern that they're not taking something and they're not impaired when they're doing their job, but it's difficult to prove. So, I mean, yeah, that's the, but that same employee could take two Oxycontins on Friday night when they get off, two on Saturday, four, six, eight on Saturday, you know, two more, four more on Sunday, go back yeah. to work on Monday. And how do we know that that's, that those Oxycontins are still not affecting them on their job Monday morning, even if they haven't taken two new ones? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so it's, it's unfair to just call out cannabis, right? It, 100%. But I think employers are, especially the bigger guys are still trying to catch up and figure out how do we address this with employees and how do we do this in a manner that, you know, that is fair and actually in line with the law. It's, it's difficult. It's complicated. There's no easy answer. It really isn't. Well, what's your take on the Olympic Committee's decision to suspend Shea Carey Richardson from competing and when, you know, the NBA and the National Football League have now stopped testing for cannabis. Um, you know, it seems so bizarre that, you know, I mean, I, I get the, the Olympic Committee claiming that, you know, we don't want to have people on uh, performance-enhancing drugs. But, you know, I mean, until they have, you know, hot dog eating contest in the Olympics, I don't think you have to worry about cannabis being a performance-enhancing drug, right? Right. No, absolutely. I mean, you've seen sweeping effects in sports, right? The Nevada Boxing Commission just made a significant change. UFC and MMA, you said NFL is actually doing research. We've got NBA making changes. So it's certainly archaic. And I think we see, unfortunately, the Olympic Committee tends to be the last to catch up. I've never seen any evidence that it's a performance enhancing drug. So I think that's our first problem. We need to take a look at, at the actual rules and go, this is outdated and there's nothing backing this up from a science perspective. You know, I think it's, it's so frustrating and it's so difficult and I absolutely feel for her. Um, it, you know, I, I understand the argument that, look, these are the rules as they're in effect right now. So we need to change them rather than try to have an exception for one program. But 
it's heartbreaking to see somebody who's worked so hard and then have it all taken away on something that absolutely is not performance enhancing, something that that is used in so many different sports in addition or in place of opioids and all these other drugs that are so strong, so much stronger and impactful from a negative perspective. It, it, it seems a little silly, but we've got to change the rules. It, 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 that's really where it starts. So, I mean, again, from a crystal ball perspective, you don't think we're going to see any of these rules or, or specific things change other than this saying banking and finance in the next couple of years, huh? I think you're, I think the athletic commissions are doing a good job and hopefully the Olympic committee will, will, look and see. And I think because globally cannabis tends to be legal much more so than in the U S I think there's a chance we can see some additional change in the Olympic committees, but I do think this is going to start sort of sport by sport state by state. I think that's what you're going to see as the evolution of cannabis continue. I think it's still going to take some time from a federal perspective. Now Arizona is putting in some initiatives to, to try to help in the application process and getting seeking cannabis licenses. They're trying to help the small guys. I mean, trying to, you know, not necessarily stop the big industry from yeah. getting in, but at least trying to make it accessible to all. Talk a little bit about those rules and, and how that should probably be extrapolated and, and put in place in all states. So we're talking about the social equity program. And, you know, we've been working on this for quite some time. And, and our regulators, absolutely, their intent is, is to open this up, right? So we don't just have the top multi-state operators. It's really difficult. It's a very difficult program to put into place so that it's effective and actually allows for diversity and accomplishes those goals without creating constitutional issues. And this is where the annoying lawyers come in, right? <laughs> We've created some of these things that say, you can't use race, you can't use ethnicity, you can't. So you have a lot of our, including Arizona, a lot of states going, how do I create a social equity program that allows for greater diversity, right? And allows for these different things without running afoul of the constitution. So Arizona's program has basically taken the position of they're trying to help disadvantaged communities. So they wanna know where you lived the last three out of four years. They wanna know what where you are on the median poverty line. It's a little bit more of a financial disparage versus diversity. I understand the, the idea is you know, that hopefully that will become more inclusive. I will say on the positive, they're creating education programs, which I think is really important. Again, this is the, one of the first states that I've ever seen as part of the application process that say, you've got to go through those states, or these classes, right, about capital and funding, about compliance, your business plan and setup, commercial contracts, real estate and zoning, right? Having them go through that process, I think, makes a significant difference because, again, it starts to level the playing field between the big MSOs who have entire legal teams to handle those things. So I think we did some things right. It's still evolving. We we're, don't have totally final rules yet. We'll see um, probably by December. But it, social equity programs are, are difficult to create. and We've seen a lot of the states who have tried to impl implement them struggle. And I think they're struggling because they're just not sure how to make them effective so we don't have programs that you know, tend to be, this is not very politically correct, but tend to be sort of a token program. And then the MSOs are right behind them. That's what we don't want, right? That's a waste of everyone's time. So it's an uphill battle. And, you know, I mean, now at the hip, that what throws me some is the fact that, you know, still, again, education, 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 most people only think that, well, if I'm going to get into hemp and I'm going to get into uh, cannabis and I'm going to get into it to, you know, open up a dispensary to sell a product or I'm going to get into to, to you know sell a product made up of minor cannabinoids, but don't even recognize the fact that this is a plant that 
has well over 250 usages. You know, there's other areas that people could get involved in. You can grow hemp, you know, 14 feet tall just to get the cellulose material to use that and supply that for rope, sheets, clothing, other things. Sure. So, um, you know, why do you think that uh, we've just stagnated in just the consumption area? So I think, again, I feel like I'm just harping on the same thing. It's a lack of education, right? People don't think through. And a lot of people who come to us and go, hey, I want a license. I want this. And my first question is, how many millions do you have? That's just a fact, right? It's What's your access to capital? If you don't have access to, to large amounts of capital to actually buy you know, licenses and things like that, there are so many other ancillary businesses that you can thrive in that we still need in the cannabis and hemp industries, right? Not only can you use hemp for a, a ton of other products, right? That's why all of our founding fathers were hemp farmers. Everybody forgets that too, right? My <laughs> law. Yeah, right? We started. So forget the fact that you can use it for so many. It's a natural resource that is so much better and so much less costly than a lot of what we use now. But you also need, again, you need lawyers, you need accountants, you need designers, you need website people, you need interior designers, you need accounting, you need all of these different professions. And so I always tell people, look, if you don't have the outright capital to go acquire a license right away, use what you're good at. What's your expertise? What do you bring to this industry? Because we still need it. We still have, have big gaps in experienced professionals in all of these different areas that understand the cannabis industry as well as their industry. And the more qualified professionals we have helping, the better. So that's another area that people can, you know, it's much easier to get into and you use something that you've obviously been building or your craft that you've been, you know, honing your whole life. Absolutely. And how about you talk a little bit about how businesses best protect themselves from loss. I mean, right now, the cannabis industry, you're not allowed to claim a lot of things for your taxes. Yeah. And, you know, the uh, you can't really take advantage of best business practices in some ways because you're thwarted by federal law from doing so. How can, you know, some of these people who are trying to get into business at least, you know, set themselves up to, for the most you know, opportunity for growth? in this really dynamic and evolving industry? So some of it is you've got to do your due diligence and you've got to stay the course versus getting caught up in the frenzy, right? We call it the green rush. People come and they have to do it now and they have to make a decision now and they don't have time for contracts and they, they, they rush, right? And they get in bed with the wrong people, the wrong partners. They don't have the right contractual arrangements in place. And then they find themselves a year from now stuck in lawsuits, which is annoying and expensive. And so it cripples them from that long-term success. The people that really get into this. And again, they start at the beginning with the, with their business plan. They start with the right professionals. They come up with a plan that allows them to grow organically rather than attempting to do what a lot of the big MSOs are, where they're going to take down, you know, 200 million in capital. That's great. But now you have debt on top of it. Right. And what is your, you know, they just don't, they don't always plan well. And I think we saw that happen even to a lot of the big MSOs. They didn't really take their time on things and they didn't grow organically. And so they came tumbling down very quickly last year. So I think for for the individuals who want long-term success, understand that this is not a sprint, right? This is a slow crawl. And if you want to be here in the long run, you've got to understand the capital needs, how to grow, and you've got to do it thoughtfully and also be ready to, to adjust to the hurdles and complications that are going to come up in cannabis, no matter how well you plan. You know, did you, did you notice any specific, you know, special challenges during this pandemic? Oh, sure. I mean, again, so we actually saw a shortage of product, right? Which sounds like a great problem to have, but when you've got people who can only come out of their houses for a certain amount of day, 
they can only purchase a certain amount of marijuana in most states, it's very frustrating if dispensaries don't have the right product. So we got, definitely saw a shortage of products. We also saw issues with the employee aspect, right? So we, getting them PPE and things, because now you're in the middle of all of this. You're almost just as much at risk as the Home Depot or the grocery shopping, all those different individuals. So we saw a lot of problems with staffing. Other problem is usually like Arizona, as an example, we have to have dispensary agent cards. That's a two week lead time to get qualified for that, right? So if half of your cultivation staff was suddenly out because of COVID, you can't just bring in temps, right? So there's a staffing issue, which also added to the, to the product um, scarcity. So in addition to that, we didn't have access to SBA loans. We don't have access to all those different helps that the government was handing out. Cannabis companies can't apply for those because again, we don't get the tax advantages. But that's, great, but that's crazy where several states consider it an essential service. Yeah. From a state level, yep. But again, most of the help and the relief packages are federal. So that's where you see the states are the ones saying you have to be open. In Arizona, you have to be open 30 hours a week. There's no choice about it. That's a, that is by state law. But you can't get help from the government, from the federal government, and you don't have access to a lot of these relief packages. So it was challenging. It was very challenging. It, it was a Again, it's great that we are sort of that recession proof or pandemic proof, if you want to call it, but it doesn't mean that they didn't have a ton of you know complications and extra costs that were very difficult for a lot of these guys to, to swallow, again, if they weren't a bigger MSO. Well, wow. what do you think are going to be some of the biggest challenges in the next couple of years when it comes to the hemp industry growing? So I think, again, right now, thanks to the farm bill, and I don't mean that facetiously, but thanks to the farm bill, there is just a lot of complications between the hemp programs and the cannabis programs. And so it's made it more difficult for companies to expand, to get their product in, in multiple states and things like that. We have to go state by state to regulators and really see what that intersection looks like. So that's definitely a complication. Um, you know, it, it's right now we're seeing just thanks to COVID, the cost of everything is more expensive, right? So that just increases the cost for cannabis businesses when you're trying to build out cultivation and manufacturing facilities and dispensaries. And now you're on regulatory enforced timelines and the cost is more expensive. It just creates more scarcity and more need for capital. So, you know, I still think those same issues we've been fighting have kind of been exacerbated thanks to COVID, you know, as well. But, you know, now when you take a look, I, I happen to be uh, a complete disclosure. I just signed on to the board of, you know, a company, an international company that uh, its CEOs are here in the United States, but they are located. One's located in Colombia. The one's other one's located in South Africa uh, or in Lesotho. And, you know, these are both companies that, you know, one in, in South, South America and Colombia has about a million hectares under contract. It's two and a half million acres. You know, wow. one of Lesotho has about a million acres under contract. Yeah. We know that China has about six million acres being dedicated to growing hemp right now. You yeah. know, you walk around the world. I mean, it's going to be very, very soon. And and we, you know, have all let down. A lot of people don't know this is during the Trump administration, some of the restrictions on importation of some of the isolates, as long as they were not THC laden isolates. Right. We're lifted. And so right. now we're going to find that, you know, growers and the cultivators and, you know, developers here in the United States are going to have, you know, a big, a huge competition when, you know, some of these million acre companies go online. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think it's really safe to say we're already a little bit behind the eight ball internationally, right? There are so many other countries that are ahead of us in cannabis and hemp. That, that goes without saying. 
I think, again, when you have regulations that are not, I don't want to say not thoughtful and be insulting, but because of a lack of understanding, the regulations are, are not helpful for the businesses themselves. You see people that are either going to do things outside of the regulations, right? Like try to get those isolates and different things from other countries, um, or they're going to get crushed by the competition. And so those are difficult choices for business owners to have to make. And I think, again, that's where the community itself needs to continue talking with regulators, talking with politicians. I know it's frustrating. It's not fun. It can be expensive, but that's the only way that we're going to see modifications in the rules and regulations that allow our businesses in the U.S. to thrive and actually be successful and compete against the international community who's just ahead of us. Do you see your your firm taking a little bit of a lead in this? I mean, you know, um, you are definitely one of the who's who in the state of Arizona. I could see very easily you putting on a forum to get people to come in a room and sit down and say, shut up and let's try to figure out how to do this together. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that we've emphasized over really the last year and a half is actually working with council in other states and actually joining together on behalf of our clients to work with regulators. And so almost as like a general council position, but because we have such a good understanding of the industry as a whole and the complications and the hurdles, we can be the bridge between local council and lawyers who may not have as much cannabis experience, right? But have those local connections and we can get involved in the conversation, which fast tracks things, right? Then clients don't have to go try to find someone in every single state. We can really bring people together and sometimes multiple clients together for, for one common goal. Or we can bring industry groups together for one common goal. To me, that's the only way that that we're going to be successful. And so that's why we, you know, we do so much work on a national basis as well as in Arizona is trying to go state by state and say, okay, here's what worked. Here's what didn't. Let me give you a sort of legal analysis. This isn't biased because I'm, you know, with this guy or this guy, but here's what, what has worked in other states and, and trying to move them towards a, a more cohesive approach that I think will help not only businesses, but the states and the consumers as well. Well, that's what I've been trying to do myself. I mean, I'm, I'm literally involved with a, uh, a major uh, company uh, that has multi-state licenses on the East Coast, but then I'm also involved with an international company that has, you know, contracts now with several other nations or other uh, countries around the world and two of them. And I'm trying to see if I can kind of get everybody to play on the same field. You know what I mean? Sure. And then, you know, I'm looking at, at trying to develop that out over a couple of other states so that, you know, we get a bigger footprint, but also, can lobby and be activists on a bigger platform. Because I think, you know, until people in this industry stop fighting each other and decide that, you know, let's go after solving this problem, we're going to be in the same boat for the next 10 years. Absolutely. And I think, you know, finding other professionals and making good introductions that, you know, I laugh all the time. There's, there's still an element of this industry that is maybe on the we'll call it the underside, right? That it's not always great to get into deals with. You find them once in a while because there's a lack of information. You know, not everybody is an upstanding business person. So I also think introducing, right, these different opportunities. If you've got a great local operator, if you've got a great operator in New York and a good local, even if they're smaller operator in Arizona, making those introductions and really giving people within the industry the ability to gain power through capital and joining together that, that's also how we're going to make change. It doesn't always have to be the big MSOs. There are opportunities. It's having those of us that have been in this industry a long time and sort of know the who's who and what to look for, building those relationships and bringing people together. And, and it sounds cheesy, but again, that's where the power comes from to actually effectuate real change across the United States, not just in little pockets. If people want to reach out and see if to pick your brain or reach out to, to hire your 
your firm, but where were they, where would they go? How did it get to you? Sure. So you can go to our website. It's BianchiBrandt.com. They can reach out at all of our contact information is on there. Again, Laura Bianchi, uh, my partner, Justin Brandt. We're always happy to chat with people and see if we can assist. Um, we really do like to build long-term partnerships. So sometimes that works. Sometimes it's not a great fit. It just depends. But always reach out and we'd be happy to chat with them and see how we can help. Anything I didn't cover? Anything else you want to add? Gosh, I no. I mean, I think... Yeah. I think we've got everything right. Next stage is really just testing and efficacy and the whole medical side of it, which is an entirely different cast. The thing that really surprises me is that, you know, even our industry doesn't know as much about what has been going on, even in the last couple of years. Absolutely. There are studies that are, are, are going on all over the world, peer reviewed, you know, documentation that's been coming out all over the world on cannabis and its efficaciousness. And, you know, I think some for some reason, this industry seems to not want to pay attention to education. And that's really, I think, our biggest pitfall, right? The more that we have education information available, the more that you can access the medical community, the more veterans can access this, the more insurance can cover. There's so many different things that, that we can then utilize this plant for, but we've got to, you know, come together and really get that education and information and, and the, the testing and, and information that's actually already available, as you said. That's the frustrating part is getting it here. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I can't say thank you enough for being a part of the show today. Um, you know, you always have a home here. If there's anything you'd like to to come on and talk about and things that are going on, let me know, Laura, because uh, we'd love to have you back. And, um, you. You know, and I think you're going to find that a lot of our listeners are going to be very impressed and, and probably reach out to you. Well, thank you so much. It really was a pleasure. And if we can ever help in any other way, talk about something else, I'd be happy to. This is the Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, make sure you tune in to the next edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Thanks for joining me on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear your feedback also, so please send us your comments. Are you dealing with best life burnout, constantly striving for more, and quite frankly, over it? Maybe you just want more joy, peace, and laughter in your life now. Well, then let's go. Welcome to your new favorite podcast, Hot Happy Mess, hosted by me, your girl, Zuri Hall. We are celebrating our magic in the middle of life's messes. Don't miss new episodes every Wednesday. Listen to the Hot Happy Mess podcast on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Larry Mishkin, and I'd like to invite you to join Rob Hunt and me on our weekly podcast, The Deadhead Cannabis Show. Each week, we explore the latest cannabis and jam band news and reminisce with other deadheads and jam band lovers about the great musical acts that we've seen and heard. Check out a new episode every Monday.